As a young man, John Davison Rockefeller said that his two greatest ambitions were to make $100,000 and live to be 100. John D. Rockefeller died two months shy of his 98th birthday, but boy, did he make good on that first goal. Rockefeller wasn't born to a rich family. His father, William Avery Big Bill Rockefeller, was a shiftless man who spent most of his time thinking up schemes to avoid actual work. Nevertheless, thanks to the guidance of his mom, Eliza, a homemaker and a devout Baptist, John D. Rockefeller grew up to be quite a hardworking young man. Rockefeller started out in business as a wholesale grocer and went on to found Standard Oil, which through shrewd business decisions and some say predatory and illegal practices, grew to be a gargantuan monopoly. In 1911, when the U.S. Supreme Court declared Standard Oil a monopoly under the Sherman Antitrust Act and declared that it be broken up into 34 independent companies, Rockefeller had retired but owned a large percentage of the shares of each of those companies. And ironically, the busting up of his monopoly doubled his fortunes overnight. Rockefeller got his first job at 16 as a bookkeeper in a move that hinted at his lifelong commitment to philanthropy. He tithed 10% of his income from his first paycheck on to charity. And as his wealth grew, so did his charitable contributions. And when he died in 1937, Rockefeller had given half of his amassed fortune away and established philanthropic foundations to continue giving after his death. Rockefeller's net worth at the peak of his wealth in today's dollars was $318 billion. That is three times the, the net worth of today's wealthiest person. Today's wealthiest individual is Carlos uh, Sh- uh, Slim of Mexico, $73 billion is his net worth. Bill Gates from America, $72 billion. The two of them last year agreed to combine their charitable giving to eliminate polio before the year 2020. Uh, I'm fascinated by something Rockefeller, Rockefeller had said long before the golden age of philanthropy that seems to wonderfully characterize some of today's billionaires. Rockefeller said this, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. I have had friends with money. Unfortunately, none of them go to this church. Um, It's a a joke, seriously. But I I I have friends that have real money, and they've told me. I have a friend who's a millionaire who's told me that if you don't start giving when you don't have much, you will never give when you have a lot. It is a pattern and a lifestyle you get into. It's one of the reasons why we as a church, um, odd as it may seem, uh, we have determined from the outset that as our church budget grows, the percentage of what we give to missions and mercy ministries will increase. Right now it's at 10%, but we actually have a chart. And I say we, the board of directors, we have a chart that shows that as our budget goes up, the percentage that we will give to mercy and missions will go up. And our hope would be, as crazy as this sounds at this inception, at this stage of our church, by the time we would have a million dollars of annual offering coming in, we'd be giving half of that away to mercy and missions. And we, I actually have a strategic plan to get there. Now, it requires that we actually grow as a church, but that said, 
If we don't plan for it now, I guarantee you, as a guy who's been at a large church with a multi-million dollar budget, they gave 10% of their income to mercy, mercy and missions. 10%. Now, in Rockefeller's case, as his wealth grew, so did the joy that came from giving. So did the joy that came from giving it all away. And if you listen to modern day guys like Bill Gates talk about it, there's significant evidence that Jesus, what Jesus had to say was true, and that is that there's more joy in giving than receiving. People with real money will tell you that that is true. Last week, as we've worked our way through this uh, Nuts and Bolts of Church series, we asked the question, do I have to go to church every Sunday? You can listen to the sermon online if you missed it. If you're asking that question, I have to point out that you probably should recognize that something is amiss in your relationship with God. Something's awry. It's like saying, do I have to go out on a date with somebody that I like? Or uh, if you're going out with somebody, as the case when I was a, a high school pastor, every now and again I'd meet with a high school young man and he would ask me the question, hey, how far is too far? The question itself kind of tells you what's on his mind. So he's already like way off base. We're saying, hey, listen, if this is the conversation you're having, we've got to step back and have a broader conversation about what it is that you are doing with your life. This week, the question is, do we have to tithe? Now, for those of you who don't know what the tithe is, and I have to tell you, when I was introduced to Christianity, um, I, 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 was, I was raised a Catholic, and they never talked about terms like tithing. And so I came to Jesus in an assembly of God church, not unlike the one across the street, and they talked about it all the time, and I had no idea where the concept came from. Tithe simply means 10%. And in the Old Testament, it is the declared way that God provided for the Israelite tribe of the Levites who oversaw the priesthood and the temples and the tabernacles that were in cities all over uh, Israel. It provided the means of supporting God's kingdom. It was also the only inheritance that the Levites had at all. The other 11 tribes got parcels of land when they received the promised land as a nation and the Israelites, the Levites got the cities and the people's commitment to give 10% of their income to enable the work of the Lord to take place, his kingdom work to take place in these cities. I don't traditionally like talking about this subject. In fact, our church is built in such a way that we don't even take up the offering in the traditional way where we have the elders come forward and they pass out the gold plates and make you feel bad for not digging in. We've got a box in the back and a box up front and we're basically saying this is between you and God. This is an offering and you know if you want to bring an offering to God, this is between you and Him and we're trusting the Lord. And one of the reasons I don't like talking about the subject as a general rule is because culturally our our, our world has great skepticism about the motives of people that are involved in churches, particularly ministers. And our ambition, primary mission A for a Prism Church is to revive believers, to find believers, if you didn't know this, we'll talk about it a lot, find believers who aren't in churches, who were in churches, who hated church, who stopped going but still have a desire to love God and we're trying to help them reconnect to Christian community in a biblical way. 
And one of the things that would make somebody stereotypically presume that we had the wrong motive would be that they show up on a Sunday and they're talking about money. So, so as a pastor, I'm like, you know, the last thing in the world I want to be doing, talking about when like a great young family comes to visit our church is money because they're thinking, Lord, is that all they talk about there? And, 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 and pastors are, are all over the television, which is one of the primary ways that our culture sees Christianity represented and you've got to watch the real pastors of L.A. or one of these reality television shows about these health and wealth ministers. And, and it's really kind of sort of embarrassing because they talk about money all the time. That's all they talk about. In fact, on Dumas' Facebook a couple weeks ago, he posted this picture. This is an actual church. They have a posting of the non-tithers in their church. So they had a list, I guess, of church members... And somebody thought it was a good idea to put the names of the people who weren't giving on a board and post it in the church. We are not going to be doing that here at PRISM, just for (laughs) your benefit, just so you know. Uh, Shaming people is is not really the motivation that I'm hoping for. And this is another one of the reasons I... I historically haven't spent a lot of time talking about this. But when we started this series, we said we, what we want to do is biblically explain why we do all that we do. And you can't avoid the subject of money from the New or the Old Testament. And so what I want to make certain we have before we start is a commitment to one another that I'm never going to guilt you into giving and you're never going to get mad at me for bringing you the Scriptures. I'll never beat you up for not giving. My ambition is that I wouldn't know anybody in our church's giving patterns or habits. Uh, We need some people to volunteer to be a part of a diaconal team that will manage our money. We have some people that are helping out in little pieces. But my goal as a pastor is to not have any sense of where your heart is in all of that. One of the other reasons I don't traditionally enjoy talking about uh, money in a church context is because I don't like to make bold claims about a connection between our giving and God's blessing if there isn't a clear biblical evidence that those connections are real. What I mean to say is, there have been times in Carolyn's in my life where God has blessed us profoundly in some way, taking care of a need of ours. And there has been, in my mind and my heart, a, a suspicion, a hint, that it was connected to something, some act of generosity, particularly that Carolyn would have done. And now... Biblically speaking, I have shades of this kind of cause and effect relationship that you might be able to draw, but nothing as concrete as you see on TV. You give and you get, you know, the, the southern huckster, the, the prosperity gospel that is, that is fleecing the poor of our country by telling them, if you'll just give me money, God will give you money. And I think, doesn't that work the other way around? Aren't you supposed to, the rich guy, give me the money and then God will give you the money, but it doesn't seem to work that way. And so they got everybody confused. They're desperate people wanting desperately to have their needs met. And unfortunately, we've got some ministers who are willing to play them that way. There are times where I would say in our lives that we have seen this connection, but I never want to communicate to people, especially to the people of our church, that I have some magic pattern for you to follow 
and I can guarantee that your financial needs will never go unmet. Um, if I had that magic pattern, uh, we'd be in a very different place as church right now in terms of our financial situation. I'm just telling you, when we talk about money around here, we want to go to what the scriptures say. And the last reason I don't talk about this a lot is because by means of confession is to say to you, I'm not 100% sure that the Bible requires us to give 10% of our gross income. Now, I'll show you a passage of scripture that, that tells the Old Testament people of Israel in the context of their national identity that they were supposed to give 10% to the Levites in Micah chapter 3, which is the, the, the position, the, the verse du jour for anybody preaching on money. This is what Micah 3 says. We're, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields and will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So people read this Old Testament verse in its context, it's talking about a theocracy, a, the, a nation of Israel governed and operated under a religious system and they were told effectively this is going to be your taxation. This is 10%. You bring it and it's required. So in that context, we're told we're supposed, you know, if we were Israelites, we were supposed to bring this in. The reason people didn't bring in and give, same reason we don't today because we're worried about stuff and we're trying to save it and keep it to ourselves. Jesus uh, muddies the water a bit, if you will. In a variety of different teachings, Jesus makes it very clear that it isn't a matter of 10% being God's and 90% being yours. Jesus seems to imply that 100% of it is his. In Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, Jesus says this, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Do we have to tithe? I think that's the wrong question. I think it, if we ask that question, it, it communicates that at the heart of our life, we are seeing it as a bother and we're seeing it as a problem instead of seeing it as a means to experiencing a new place with God. What we can say about giving from the New Testament, and I, and I want to make this clear, and if it drags our sermon on just a little long today, forgive me. I'm trying to keep my sermons short so that you won't be skittish about bringing friends to church and having them sit through an hour-long lecture. But at the same time, when we talk about sensitive subjects like this, I want to make sure that you understand where we're coming from. With regards to our church's belief in our, our being redeemed children of God, from a gospel point of view, I can tell you these things about giving and tithing. One is, it's no longer a matter of law. 
We're not judged eternally guilty for not tithing. We are no longer under the law. As New Testament Christians, we're saved by grace. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not commanded to do certain things like give and help the poor and support our church. And that by obeying God, it yields good results. Because anytime you obey God, it's going to be the best thing for you and for everybody involved. And I've known nobody who has tithed faithfully in their life and ever thought, you know, I wish I could get that money back. God has always managed to provide over and above anything that you might give to his works. It it is also clear from the New Testament that giving is supposed to be done cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says as much. We're not supposed to give being guilted. And so I would tell you, that it's the equivalent of if you are in a relationship with somebody, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. And if somebody has to tell you, hey, you're bringing me my Valentine's Day card Friday, right? And the flowers, you've ordered them. See, if you're, that God does not need your money. He would really like a Valentine's card from you though. And he'd like that to come from your heart. See, this is not about guilt. It's about you in relationship with Jesus being able to do something that brings your heavenly father pleasure. And he doesn't need your money, but he really does want your heart. It's also, I can say with clarity, not a matter of percentages. According to Luke 12, 48, to to whom much is given, much is required. And I would say this much with conviction about the requirement to tithe. It is either that God expects us to give a minimum of 10% to his kingdom work or he requires that we give as much as we possibly can, which for many of us is worse because we're like, well, can we go back to where you just get 10? Because, Because I can tell you that for most of us, we could live with far less than we have. Now, I'm not saying it's true for everybody, but I'm saying It's either he wants a minimum of 10% or he wants most all of it. The scriptures would give us a reason as to why that would be the case. Why does God ask us, command us? Why does Jesus teach us to give it away? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is why we do giving and talk about giving sporadically, though it may be here at Prism Church. And that is because money is one of those things that will take our hearts away from God. It is Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evils. It's Rick Warren who gives away 90% of his millions and keeps 10% and actually doesn't feel all that comfortable about the 10% he keeps. And Rick Warren says it's to keep, he does this, he's a reverse tither, to keep the tentacles of American materialism from choking off his spiritual life. This totally resonates with me. I get it. I've told you and confessed to you as my church before that if I had a million dollars, I'd be one of the worst spenders in the world. And so God has consistently said, you be faithful with the little you have and I'll take care of you. Now, if a pastor said in a sermon that a person who made the habit of drinking too much was forfeiting the joy they could have in God's presence by getting drunk, most people in the church, at least the teetotalers, would respond amen. If 
A pastor preaches that a man consumed with pornographic influences would be healthy spiritually and his marriage would be in a better place if he ceased sinning in this way and discovered a deeper sense of fulfillment in Christ's presence and in his own marriage. The women of our church in particular would collectively yell out, that's right, pastor. I mean, we'd get right Pentecostal on you all in a hurry. And yet I wonder oftentimes if Christian ministers putting forth the very Christ-like and biblical teaching that those who do not give, those who do not tithe, they're not simply robbing God, but they're robbing themselves of a greater joy if affluent Christians aren't too quick to begin to complicate or muddy the discussion. Wait, it can't be that simple. What about this exception? What about that exception? I have to tell you, I think we have to humbly admit that we are prone to not trusting God in this area and saying, Lord, we're going to keep our stuff because we don't believe that if we obey your word and give as generously as we can, that you are going to provide for us, that you are going to take care of us. Giving is one way that you and I free ourselves from this trap of materialism, which is particularly challenging in this country. A dependence on our accumulation of wealth is our source of joy and peace. I'll tell you, I know That idol is every bit as dirty and scandalous as the grime of pornography or the abuse of alcohol. And this is why giving is a part of our worship. Now, let's look at this passage today in Luke 12 because Jesus says a couple of things about giving that I think are pretty impressive. It really talks more about what we save and what we spend. And and in this passage, Jesus is asked to settle a family inheritance squabble and Fascinatingly enough, somebody associated with a church, a friend of Carolyn's and mine, is about to go through this ringer. And I won't give you her name because I just think it would be inappropriate for me to do that. None of you know her. But I would just say pray for Chuck and Carolyn's friend. Because when I say her family has money, I don't mean they have a few thousand dollars. They have hundreds of millions of dollars in their family estate. And uh, their matriarch is about to pass away and she has hinted that already World War III is in play. That people who are supposed to love each other and care for each other are now more mine, as if a third of all that wouldn't be enough. But I'm going to beat up my other brothers and sisters to try to get more out of it. You think that couldn't happen to you? You think your heart isn't evil enough that you could all of a sudden turn on your brothers and sisters for more stuff? Well, if you're living off of the things of this world, that's going to happen. A.W. Tozer says this, The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. For those of us who don't know the presence of the Lord in a meaningful way, we'll very quickly be drawn that way. Jesus has said, has asked in Luke 12 in this context, come, settle this dispute. My brother is not giving me any of the inheritance. And you'd think in a world of justice and how important justice is to Jesus that he would say, well, then we're going to deal with the justice of this situation. You give the portion to your brother that's needed. And that's not what Jesus' deal is. Jesus says, we're going to use this opportunity. We're going to use this experience here to reveal the matters of the heart. This is the, this is the beautiful reality of difficult situations in our lives. When I do pre-marriage counseling, and I'm doing pre-marriage counseling 
Hi. Uh, Jer- Jeremy and Tiffany, uh, we're having fun together. Um, the thing I reiterate in pre-marriage counseling to people is that pressure reveals cracks, and you don't know where the cracks are until the thing gets really hot. And, and this is one of the things. Jesus is saying, this is an opportunity for us to see our hearts and what we do with our money and how we deal with our money and how we feel about our money gives us a chance. It gives us an opportunity to go, I mean, I like what I see, but I get to see where the cracks are. Jesus uses this occasion to point out what will own our hearts if not him. So let's dive into the passage real quick. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 26 And our first thought in this passage would be this. How we spend reveals what gives life and peace. How we spend reveals what gives us life and peace. Jesus said to his disciples, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more important, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? If you looked at our visa bill, well, my visa bill, um, in, in our family, because I asked Carolyn, I said, what would you think would be uh, the one thing you would see on our visa bill that would tell you the most about me? And she said, restaurants. And that's the truth. If you looked at our visa bill, what you'd see is the, the, the charge that comes up most frequently is me going out to eat. And there's a reason for that. I love food. Um, and I, I love being with people and eating. It's one of the great joys of my life. It's one of the few times that guys can sit down and have meaningful conversation. I mean, women can sit down over a cup of coffee and hold their hands around a cup and and look all feminine and everything. Dudes just aren't going to do that, uh, at least most. And so we need to be eating. And so guys can do the whole emotional connection thing, but we need a meal in front of us. And we need to have something busy going down to make that really work for us. I also just, just love being with people in that environment. And so it's important to me. The other thing you'll see a disproportionate number of charges for is West Virginia gear, T-shirts and keychains and anything with a flying WV on it. If you come to my office or my house, it's really sad. And then people like JT buy me gifts. Like JT and Kristen bought me a mat last year with WV on it. Like, you're feeding the beast here, chief. You know, are, do you really want to go there? You know, you, it's not like it's going to satisfy my longing for more West Virginia crud. The more you give me, the more it just lights that fire inside of me. I would say how we spend will tell a lot about what's important to you. And, and really, in this ta- passage, he's saying that it's more than just what's important. It's, it's what gives you life. And I'm not going to deny that I get joy out of these things. What Jesus is saying is, Don't worry about your life. It's about more than material things. So if you spend a ton on a particular thing, whether you're shopping for shoes, again, not something most of my guy friends and me do, uh, if you're doing any type of shopaholism where you just kind of go through the mall and you buy stuff to feel better as, as a whole, this all tells us in our heart of hearts that this is what is giving us life. In particular, if we worry about things. 
when we get anxious, when we say, I can't live without this. I can't live without this. Then that is saying to us, this is doing more than just meeting a need or providing something that you can enjoy. This is something that is fueling your soul. And in our case, that's why we would encourage people to give. To give away that thing which is keeping you from enjoying God. At our heart, in verse 23, we're told life is more about uh, food and the body more about clothes. And, and I think for many of us, it is the lack of belief that Jesus is enough to provide life that causes us to look to the material things instead of him. For us, we have to be asking the brutally honest question about whether what we believe, what Jesus said, that there is greater joy, greater blessing in giving than receiving. Jesus uses the imagery of birds to demonstrate to us that God cares for us. And it really touches at the heart. Do you really believe that he loves you. So he's saying, if, if I take care of birds, why do you not believe that I'm gonna take care of you? And it's because you don't believe that you're as important to God as birds. This is the problem. That deep down in our souls, we have ceased to find life's greatest joy, life's greatest peace found in being the privileged, cared for, adored children of God. Jesus, I've mentioned it a couple of different times. Acts 20, verse 35. That's the verse you're going to want to etch. If you're going to get that tattoo, this is a good one. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you have to tithe? Let me ask you a question. You could say, do I have to tithe? What if I asked you this question? Back in the mid-1980s, did the people that had the foresight to do so have to invest in Microsoft? Saw this the other day, it's pretty interesting. If you had the good fortune to have bought 100 shares of Microsoft at the $21 offering price, that is, if in 1986 you had invested $2,100, over the time from 1986 to now, that investment would have mushroomed into 28,800 shares over the course of nine stock splits and now be worth three quarters of a million dollars. If you'd invested $2,100 in 1986 and sat on it, knowing what you knew about Microsoft ahead of time, you'd now have a tidy little profit of $750,000. And you say, well, sure, but who knew that that was going to be the one company that blew up? And this is the exciting thing I'd like to share with you secondly this morning is that we already know from the testimony of Jesus that the investment we would make in kingdom things pays eternal dividends. We already know, we've been told, in a spiritual sense, Jesus has already told us, hey, Microsoft, nothing. Invest in the things that are important to me, people's needs, my kingdom work, and I guarantee you for eternity there is a benefit to you. We see a lot about who we are by how we spend. We find out what gives us life and peace. 
But I would also say that how we give reveals our life's priorities. There's no question, there's no way around it that what we give to shows what our priorities are. Even people who are particularly charitable in their giving. I mean, if you have somebody who has a lot of money and they give a lot of money away, they usually give money to the things that are most important to them. There's usually a descending amount of money they distribute to people they've never met but have needs. The people that are closest to their heart, the issues, the, the charities, the, the places where they could give charitably, like Bill Gates giving to eliminate polio. He gives a ton of money away, not just to the polio cause, but I can assure you he's given more to the polio eradication cause than he is to schooling that he might be helping here and there and everywhere. What we give reveals our priorities. Let's pick up again in verse 29. Jesus says, don't you set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the key verse here, verse 34, telling us we will give to where our heart is. Where our treasure is, I I guarantee you that's where your heart is. Jesus says as much, but all of us know that to be true. Do you have a gargantuan cable package? I do. I mean, I don't mean to brag, but it's pretty good. Got sports channels, and people say, why are you spending that kind of money? I don't know. Maybe I ought to stop, but I can tell you this much. It's obviously important to me. What we spend our money on has to be what is important to us. The distinction between the priorities of the believer and the non-believer in verses 29 and 30 are that the believer is first and foremost concerned with the kingdom of God. I don't think there's anything wrong with me having direct TV. What I'm saying is it would be wrong for Chuck to have a direct TV package (laughs) and give nothing to church. In other words, to not give sacrificially. To say, I can't give, sorry, I'm too busy watching sports on TV. There would be something wrong with my heart. It would be like, what, what is your priority, Chuck? Are you here to care for people or are you here to entertain yourself to death? And I don't mean to make you uncomfortable. I don't want to make myself uncomfortable. I'm just saying there's no denying that when I look at what I spend on A, B, or C, that whatever I'm spending the most on is at that time probably the most important thing to me or at least hinting at what's most important to me. In verse 31, it says, we're called to make giving our things to the enterprises to God our top priority. It may not be the most money we give to because in California, if you have rent, it's gonna eclipse pretty much anything else you have in your budget. Uh, and I recognize that. But I'm saying, you know, outside of how, how much it costs to live here and in New York and other places, you know, I would say what we do with our discretionary income says a lot about our priorities. And we see with clarity from Jesus that where we spend is where our heart is already. And if we want our giving to change, and one of the things that is a part of being a gospel-centered church is 
the goal here isn't to guilt you into giving more. The goal here is to get you and I into a place where we recognize that if our giving, if we say, hey, there's evidence that I am not prioritizing the way I should. I am, there's evidence in my life that I don't love the things of God like I should, that I don't give like I should, that the issue is our hearts. If we want to change our giving, we're going to have to see our heart changed. So how do we change our hearts? We can't. This is the distinction of Christianity. This isn't self-help. We're not telling you, just get it together, grit your teeth, go home and beat yourself up a bit. Discipline yourself, good gracious. We're saying, this is about showing God you love him and you want him to be most important, that you want his priorities to be your priorities. The issue is to say, Jesus, help me to see how much you love and how much you have given to me. Verse 32 says, the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And unless and until we sense that the Father loves us and has given his kingdom to us, we won't give it to others. We will always see giving as obligatory instead of what Jesus promised it would be, a great source of joy. How do we change? Well, we change by crying out to God for his grace, by seeking him and coming to today, we'll have communion. This is a means of grace. We're saying, I'm coming to the table. I need you to change my heart. Why are we going to start praying every week and have a prayer chapel here? It's because we realize that the things we want to see God do at Prism in our own hearts, in our community, are not things we can do. We're asking God to do these things. And the only way we can actualize those things in a real way is to say, Jesus, we're coming to you, we're seeking you. It is our responsibility to at least hoist the sail of the boat. I use that analogy because one of my favorite writers, preachers, one of my favorite dead guys, as they say, is Charles Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon said. Spread your sail But remember what you sometimes sings. And then he quotes an Augustus Top Lady hymn. I can only spread the sail. Thou, thou must breathe the auspicious gale. Only be sure you have the sail up. Don't miss the gale for want of preparation for it. Seek help of God that you may be more earnest in duty when made more strong in faith, that you may be more constant in prayer when you have more liberty at the throne, that you may be more holy in your conversation whilst you live more closely with Christ. The goal of our church is that you and I would be close to Jesus. We're going to take advantage of certain indicators, not economic indicators like watching the stock ticker. We are, though, going to use economics, our own personal spending, as a barometer to say, where's my heart? See, whether it's that or whether it's an addiction to a substance or whether it's a bad relationship or whether it's a strange perspective on things, they all are indicators to us, where is my heart? And our goal in our church is to get our hearts to be with the Lord. And if our hearts are with the Lord, our treasure will be there also. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of getting to take an extended period of time to talk with my brothers and sisters about what in our culture is a dicey subject. But we pray for that very thing that we said we hope for, which is we need our hearts changed. 
we need to find our greatest joy and life and peace in you, Jesus, so that when you ask us to give things to others, uh, we won't feel threatened. Father, until the reality of the gospel, the reality of your presence, the, the truth that you love us and that we can find joy and satisfaction in your presence, until those things are real to us, we're unfortunately going to treat giving as obligatory. I pray that, Father, we would move forward by faith, doing that which pleases you, even if we don't understand it, but at the same time that you would work miracles in our church, in our own hearts, that we would long for you more than anything else we have, and that we would evidence our hearts being close to you by how much we're willing to surrender to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.